From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, a new episode of The Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. This week, Jared writes a book. We'll have comment from our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. But first, the transformation of the Southern Baptist Convention into a powerful right-wing political force over the last 50 years. Sarah Posner will explain that history in a minute. There was a time when the Southern Baptist Convention was not the key force mobilizing the assault on abortion rights, and then they changed. The changes included a new activism against gay rights and a new insistence on wifely submission. The same history also saw the rise of sexual abuse and sexual assault by church leaders. For that history, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's out now in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Sarah's a reporter with Type Investigations. Her work on the religious right has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, the Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States and have been for a while. How big are they right now? Right now, they have about 14 million members on their membership rolls. It's down a little bit from the peak at about 15 or 16 million, but they're still the largest Protestant denomination. There was a time when Southern Baptists were not calling abortion genocide, when they were not campaigning, in their words more recently, to make abortion not only illegal, but also unthinkable. So return with us now to America before 1973. Of course, that was the year the Supreme Court declared abortion a constitutional right. Before that, what was the Southern Baptist position on abortion? Well, they either didn't have a position on abortion or their position was something along the lines of it was between the woman and her doctor. But well before Roe, it, it wasn't very common for evangelicals to have a specific position on abortion. And much to the consternation of some evangelicals who were opposed to abortion, and in particular to the architects of the religious right, they could not bring uh, evangelicals into the anti-abortion fold with Catholics. And so getting evangelicals, and in particular the very powerful Southern Baptist Convention, on board with that agenda was a key aim of the religious right. In the beginning, it was the Catholic Church that was the main political force campaigning to make abortion a crime. Of course, they were huge and well-organized, but also not successful in that Roe did pass. Why was the political power of the Catholic Church not equal to their numbers or their organization? Well, unlike evangel white evangelicals today, who are overwhelmingly anti-abortion, American Catholics 
then and now are very split on abortion. You have, you know, 70, 80% of white evangelicals being opposed to abortion today. Today, it's more like, you know, among white Catholics, it's, it's much more evenly divided, maybe like a little bit more on the side of being pro-choice. And that's also true among uh, Latino Catholics. One of the remarkable things about the formation of the religious right is it brought together Catholics and evangelical Protestants in a coalition that had never existed before due to, you know, anti-Catholic bias and other theological uh, rifts between the two, the, the two main branches of Christianity. Yeah, if you remember the 1960 election, John F. Kennedy, a Catholic running for president, there was huge anxiety among Protestants that the Pope would be in charge of what happened in the White House. And it was considered a triumph of American moderation that Kennedy could narrowly get elected. But Protestant opposition to Catholic power had been a central feature of American politics for a hundred years. And I think that's another reason why they weren't as effective on their own opposing uh, abortion in the United States. And maybe we should say a few words about the differences in the organization and structure of the Southern Baptist Church and the Catholic Church. Just to be absolutely clear, not all evangelicals are Southern Baptists. It's just that the Southern Baptist Convention being the largest denomination carries a lot of weight in its official pronouncements because so many American evangelicals uh, belong to non-denominational churches where there is no structure or hierarchy at all. So like the pronouncements of the Southern Baptists have and still do carry a lot of weight uh, among evangelicals and in the Republican Party. But the Southern Baptist Convention is um, structured more like a fellowship of churches. There is no pope, so to speak, and there is no hierarchy of cardinals and bishops and priests. You know, the churches are much more independent, even though most of them hew to the pronouncements of the body as a whole. And in fact, during the period of the radicalization of the Southern Baptist Convention, some churches were kicked out because of their lack of adherence to uh, those pronouncements, including on issues of uh, LGBTQ rights and so on. But it is in terms of just their day-to-day operation of their churches, much less hierarchical than the Catholic Church. Well, your new piece for the nation provides really an indispensable history of the transformation of the Southern Baptist Convention, a transformation that included not only their stance on abortion, but also on gay rights and on what they politely called wifely submission. But let's start with abortion rights. What were the key steps in this transformation? Around the time of the late 1970s, when the conser- what, the, what the conservatives call the conservative resurgence inside the Southern Baptist Convention and its critics call the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention, what happened over the 1970s and 80s is as the conservatives gained control of the denomination as a whole, gained control of all of the uh, officer positions within it, purged people who were in disagreement with their fundamentalist theology, the official statements of the convention called resolutions that are adopted each year at their annual meeting became more and more radical on the issue of abortion. So the takeover really began in 1979. In 1980, they called for banning abortion except to save the mother's life. So that was actually a more liberal position than they took in 1984 when they called it a national sin. By 2003, 
They were praying for the day when the act of abortion will not only be illegal, but also unthinkable. And then by 2015, when this conservative resurgence had been in place for decades, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention was officially calling abortion a genocide. And, and this was not just an intensification of the ideology. You say it followed a change in leadership. This is what they called a conservative resurgence. You use the term fundamentalist takeover, which sounds uh, more appropriate to me. How exactly did that come about? How was it organized and why did it succeed? Well, it succeeded through an exercise of raw political power. So basically what happened was there were Southern Baptists within the movement who were, you know, biblical literalists, fundamentalists, whatever you want to call that. They were concerned and worried in their view that along with changes in the secular culture, the denomination was becoming more liberal and wasn't adhering to what they would call a literal view of the Bible. Um, and so they sort of zeroed in on this biblical literalism issue that there were people within the denomination who perhaps were not taking seriously the, their claim that the Bible is 100% true. And so uh, two people, Paul Pressler, who at the time was an appellate court judge, state appellate court judge in Texas, and a Southern Baptist layman, and uh, Paige Patterson, who was within the denomination, a very respected uh, theologian, they joined up together. They very famously met at the Café du Monde in New Orleans to hatch out this plan to go across the country and get the people, they're called messengers, who go to the annual meetings, convince them to vote for these biblical literalist candidates for official positions within the denomination. And they press this kind of like, you know, the same kind of similar way that the co uh, Christian coalition would later operate by like enlisting people to vote for these more radical candidates. And they, you know, basically seized control of the nominating uh, and electoral process within the denomination at the meeting. And then they were able to get these uh, fundamentalists elected. And that over time changed the course of the of the denomination and every president since then has, you know, pledged adherence to this biblical inerrancy and to conservative resurgence as, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to the Southern Baptist Convention. Abortion was only one of the central issues of the fundamentalist takeover. Uh, let's talk about Matthew Shepard. Yes. You know, one of the things about the takeover was that homosexuality was a complete sin, no ifs, ands, or buts. Later, that would evolve into opposition to same-sex marriage. But when this first started, um, that, that wasn't even on the table. So in the mid-2000s, after the torture and murder of Matthew Shepard, the gay college student in uh, Laramie, Wyoming, Congress was debating an anti-hate crimes bill named for Matthew Shepard. The Southern Baptist Convention, so, you know, this was not really about LGBTQ rights or same-sex marriage or anything like that, but they adopted a resolution urging lawmakers and then President George W. Bush not to support this legislation because, quote, the Bible is clear in its denunciation of homosexual behavior. So they were opposed to a bill that would prevent murderous hate crimes against gay people because the Bible is clear in its denunciation of homosexual behavior. And they also claimed that hate crimes laws would be used to 
punish Christians who voiced their uh, religious objection to homosexuality. And they succeeded. The Matthew, Hay, Matthew Shepard Hay Crimes Bill did not become law until Barack Obama was president. And all this went along with a growing political activism of the Southern Baptist Convention. The key moment seems to have been 1979. The presidential election of 1980 was coming up. The the incumbent president was a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher named Jimmy Carter. Right. Um, and he was challenged by Ronald Reagan, the governor of California. What exactly was Ronald Reagan's uh, religion? Uh, what was it? We don't <laughs> yeah. remember, right? But Jimmy Carter represented exactly the kind of Southern Baptist that the Southern, the, the conservative, the architects of the conservative resurgence wanted expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, that kind of, uh, you know, liberal politics, liberal theology. So this coalescing around Ronald Reagan was the end result of the religious rights early organizing the formation of the moral majority, the bringing of evangelicals and Catholics together into this religious right operation. Reagan was their chosen figure, much like, you know, Trump would be uh, four decades later. And Southern Baptists played a very important role in that organization of the religious right around Reagan and then the Republican Party as a whole. And then 20 years later, Jimmy Carter left the Southern Baptist Convention. In, it was in 2000. He said it was because of the policy on wifely submission and the decision by the convention at their 2000 national meeting that women should no longer serve as pastors. Let's talk about wifely submission. So that is a, a theology that's also known as complementarianism. It's based on a verse in Ephesians about that talks about how the wife must submit to the husband as he is the head of the household. And a lot of defenders of complementarianism say that outsiders misread it, that it's really about just like that the wife and husband have different roles in the household. And it's not just that she submits to him, that she can have her say on certain things. But it's obviously pretty clear, <laughs> like it, <laughs> it says she must submit to her husband. And that's what they said in the um uh, the official resolutions that the Southern Baptists adopted. And this is very much reflected also in their ongoing refusal to allow women to have preaching roles within the church. And other Southern Baptists have left the, the denomination over the same opposition. Uh, Beth Moore, who is a very prominent um, Southern Baptist uh, speaker, author. She's very popular among evangelical women. And she recently left over the um, refusal to allow women to preach. Jimmy Carter's statement was, quote, I'm familiar with the verses they have quoted about wives being subjugated to their husbands. In my opinion, this is a distortion of the meaning of scripture I personally feel the Bible says all people are equal in the eyes of God. I personally feel that women should play an absolutely equal role in service of Christ in the church. Close quote, Jimmy Carter, 2000. 
Jimmy Carter is still reviled by right-wing evangelicals, you know, as, as probably one of the worst presidents America has ever had, right? Um, and this, I think, is very much because he was a Southern Baptist of the type that they were, that they were aiming to drive out of the denomination. So we started out by saying that the Southern Baptists used to be different 50 years ago. They were not obsessed with stopping all abortions. Is it possible they could be different again? At the most recent meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, which was in Anaheim a couple of months ago, in response to all the terrible news about the sex abuse scandal, some leaders were elected who were not hardliners. Do you think the sex scandals could lead to a change in the Southern Baptist activism on abortion? No, absolutely not. They do not see these things as being connected to one another. They do not see their opposition to abortion or LGBTQ rights or their support of these patriarchal theologies like complementarianism. They don't see this as being in any way whatsoever connected to the sex abuse scandal, nor do they acknowledge that the two people who were the engineers of the conservative uh, resurgence, the fundamentalist takeover, um, were themselves implicated in the sex abuse scandal. Uh, Paul Pressler has been accused by multiple men of having raped them or attempted to rape them or come on to them over a multi-decade period, um, even as he was pressing for um, opposition to LGBTQ rights and, and calling you know, homosexuality an abomination. And Paige Patterson is one of the main promoters of the uh, complementarianism. And he, notwithstanding being uh, expelled from his seminary because it came to light that he had you know, counseled rape survivors there to like, you know, not come forward to the police and that, you know, women continue to preach that women should be submissive. Let's just make this clear. This is women who survived rape by their Southern Baptist pastors. Right, right. Or fellow seminarians. And uh, yes. And so he, he is not seen in a negative light by many Southern Baptists. He was at the most recent meeting in Anaheim. He recently spoke um, at the church of Robert Jeffress, who is a very prominent um, Southern Baptist and a, a big supporter of Donald Trump. Um, and he is, was greeted and, and portrayed as like one of the greatest Southern Baptist leaders ever. For one thing, they do not connect the theology with the sex abuse. And for another, they have a really hard time acknowledging either that their revered leaders were involved in the sex abuse or that their revered leaders turned a blind eye to it or covered it up. They tend to think of it in very sort of narrow, well, there were a few bad apples and maybe we need to do something about um, addressing these few bad apples, but it's not seen as an overall systemic problem. Your closing thoughts. I think something that was really interesting to me in the wake of the sex abuse scandal and you know, relates to your question about are Southern Baptists going to change now was that the outside company they hired to perform the investigation of the, of the sex abuse scandal, Guidepost Solutions. It has come under attack by Southern Baptists on social media because uh, during Pride Month, they, I can't remember what it was exactly that they 
they made a statement on their Twitter account or their Facebook about supporting Pride Month or something like that. Um, and so a lot of Southern Baptists thought that that proved that this was the sort of, you know, independent investigators that Southern Baptists shouldn't trust because this was a company that supported LGBTQ rights. So I feel like there's a lot of sort of excuse making and refusal to see how all of this connects together. And it just shows how these fundamentalist theologies become so entrenched that outsiders are not trusted at all. So this company that's well known for doing these kinds of internal investigations of sex abuse is dismissed because they support Pride Month. Sarah Posner. She wrote about the Southern Baptist Convention's Deal with the Devil for The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Sarah. This is great. Thanks so much, John. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Today, Jared writes a book. He called it Breaking History. For comment, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of The New Yorker. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks. Jared opens his book by saying he, quote, hopes it enhances our shared journey, close quote. What is he talking about? That is so Jared speak. Jared has a new age side to him that really comes out in this book. Our shared journey. I think, well, what he's talking about is his hoped for readers. And he hopes that the people who were on the journey with him already, that is to say Trump supporters, will be reading this book because believe me, they are going to be the friendliest readership this book is going to have. And they're not known for their, you know, deep dedication to reading. So I don't know who they are, but I'm sure it will be a bestseller. I'm sure it already is. Well, let's start at the end of the story, January 6th. We know Ivanka was backstage that day at the Stop the Steal rally where Trump called on the armed mob to march on the Capitol. And then we know Ivanka spent the afternoon in the White House trying to get Trump to call off the attack. What does Jared say about his day of January 6th? He was returning from having brokered a deal in the Arab world to uh, lift sanctions against Qatar. Um, this was very important to him. And he was on a plane returning from that, one of his many, many triumphs that's detailed in this book. While back home, the president was encouraging the Capitol riot, but not according to Jared. According to Jared, he never encouraged the violence. He doesn't even consider that he might have encouraged it. He never it never entered Trump's head that violence could happen at this uh, demonstration. Yeah, what he writes is, um, quote, it is clear to me that no one at the White House expected violence that day. I'm confident that if my colleagues or the president had anticipated violence, they would have prevented it from happening, close quote. That is clear to him. Is that clear to you? No, of course not. We watched it. I guess he didn't have a TV on his plane. 
But what we saw at the very least was that the president never called in the National Guard when the National Guard should have been called in. But I mean, from then ongoing discussion of what happened on that day, we know that the president was perfectly happy to encourage them. He gave a speech encouraging them. He told them to go and stand up for, you know, their rights. And what did he say? Go wild. It's going to yeah, be wild. Let's get wild. It's, it's going to be, be wild. wild. Wild is not relaxed and peaceful, <laughs> especially when it, it's Trump supporters. And and we know from that final hearing of the January 6th committee that he didn't call them off until it was clear two hours after the attack, more than two exactly. hours after the attack began, that they were losing to the to the police. Only then did he call off the attack on the Capitol that Ivanka had been trying to get him to do for hours. Right. He does say at one point in the book, let's see, the three rules of Trump. Controversy elevates message. When you're right, you fight, never apologize. And I think that's that also speaks to the January 6th uh, methods of Trump. Controversy elevates, encourage them to go in there and do whatever they want to do. And then don't stop them. When you're right, you fight. So he thinks he's right. He's going to fight and don't apologize. And I I think Jared goes right along with that. And the only thing he has Ivanka doing is helping to craft Trump's post-riot message. Uh, Nothing really about her trying to get him to sort of intervene in, in this situation and stop it. He says he and Ivanka helped write the speech Trump gave on January 7th, which he quotes almost at the very end of the book. Yeah. He quotes Trump saying in the words that he and Ivanka wrote for Trump, quote, the demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy to those who engaged in acts of violence and destruction. You do not represent our country. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. We must revitalize the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that bind us together as one national family close quote. Uh, I think this is a little trouble for Jared right now promoting the book since Trump has said he wants to pardon all the people who have been convicted and sentenced to prison for attacking police officers and so on. Exactly. I mean, the end of the book is all about how Ivanka militated for pardons for decent people who had been wrongly, uh, wrongly imprisoned, uh, wrongly convicted. Does Jared agree with Trump's claim that the 2020 election was stolen and that Donald Trump should be president today? He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say that he agrees with Trump, that Trump should still be in the White House. He doesn't say he shouldn't be. He just doesn't address the central controversy that actually caused the January 6th riots. He only addresses the riots as though they happened in a vacuum. Jared's biggest achievement, in his view, was bringing peace to the Middle East. Uh, A lot of people may have missed this story, the Abraham Accords, where uh, two Arab states signed an agreement to recognize the state of Israel. And which two countries were at the White House for signing the Abraham Accords? It was the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, um, and afterwards Morocco and Sudan signed on as well. I was not aware that Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, and the UAE were 
important to uh, peace in the Middle East. I thought it was more Saudi Arabia versus Iran. Uh, why does Jared think this is this is peace in the Middle East, which no other president was able to achieve? Because he knows that those countries are Muslim. He's very close to Israel. And so he feels that an arrangement in which some Muslim countries that he may have heard of before he went to the White House <laughs> um, have agreed to deal with Israel as a legitimate government. So to him, that's peace in the Middle East. And, and it was framed as such in the mainstream media in many publications, like Tom Friedman's column. So one of the things Jared says in here is that because he is not an expert and has no expertise or, or you know years of dealing with this, he was able to see that you didn't need to have the Palestinians be a party to this and agree to it before it could be done. But his interpretation is completely flawed and his even his expression of what he felt, I believe is wrong. What he really felt was he doesn't want the Palestinians to be part of it because Israel doesn't want the Palestinians to be part of it. And therefore the Palestinians weren't gonna be part of it. And that, you know, he would throw some bones to the Palestinians uh, on the West Bank of jobs job support, but that was that. And then that he would make deals with these uh, Arab nations who are haven't really been completely vested in the Palestinian cause in the first place. Sudan and Morocco come to mind. <laughs> and, and Bahrain. The larger issue, of course, is defending Trump, his father-in-law. This is not easy. We have, you know, the excess Hollywood tape. We have separating children from their parents at the border. We have calling Mexicans criminals and rapists. We have minimizing the COVID threat. What is Jared's general approach to defending his father-in-law on all of these bad things that Trump did? He defends him in a way that to me is hilarious, especially the rapist thing. So he talks about um, how Trump gave this speech and the speech had been written for him, but because Trump is great, he gave his own speech on immigration and just talked off the cuff, speaking to the real feelings of the American people and calling Mexican immigrants rapists. And he said the reason he called them rapists was he talked to some guy who was a border patrol guy, some, you know, officer, nobody, officer, <laughs> nobody, who said, you know, a lot of these guys are rapists and criminals. So Trump put that in the speech on immigration. <laughs> and he said, Trump often does this. Then he went to the post office and the post office had a plan for a million dollar revamp of the post office headquarters so they could have air conditioning. And then he talked to some electrician who was involved in working on the project. And like, they don't need to do this. They could just put a fan in the basement and blow up the cold air. So Trump, you know, abandoned the whole plan for the post office air conditioning. Jared makes it into, you know, all of the biggest mistakes into virtues. That's what he tries to do. And then, of course, we're always interested in the in the personal stuff. And he knows that the very first chapter of the book is about his father going to jail when he is young. We know this story pretty well, but how does he tell it? He tells it as if he were a young black kid whose father was wrongly accused of something and he had to go and visit dad in prison all the time and how it harmed his life. But it showed him that his dad was strong. Yet what Charlie Kushner was accused of and convicted of were really abominable 
<laughs> crimes, including the uh, hiring of a prostitute and the taping of the prostitute with his brother-in-law. Which he then gave to his sister. Which he then gave to his sister, his brother-in-law's wife, for reasons of uh, uh, financial revenge. So, you know, it doesn't really sit well, the defense. He never says, my father was did wrong things. And we do know that his father pledged uh, $2.5 million to Harvard, after which they admitted Jared. Does he thank his his father for this in the book? No, no, because <laughs> he doesn't want people to know that. But, you know, there I would have to say, Harvard, <laughs> was that right of you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, we're very interested in, he knows we are very interested in his romance with Ivanka. He's happy to tell us how great it was wooing her. But there was this crisis where he told her that they had to break up because she was not Jewish and he couldn't marry someone who is Jewish. And then we know that she agreed to convert and she studied to become an Orthodox Sabbath observant Jew. How does he tell that story? Well, you know, I don't want to dismiss her conversion because I happen to know that it's really hard to convert to Orthodox Judaism. You do have to study, but the way he tells it, he doesn't want to get into that, of course. That's too Jewish. So he's, this is what he says. We began meeting with a rabbi and studying and practicing Shabbat together. I saw that Ivanka was enjoying these rituals. After a few Friday evenings eating takeout from Second Avenue Deli, my favorite New York deli, Ivanka decided she wanted to learn how to cook to make our Friday nights together more special. She loved it and quickly became an excellent chef. And that That's is it. it. That is it, really. <laughs> and and not only does that make you wonder about Ivanka's conversion, like she wants to learn how to cook for Shabbat, it actually sounds like Ivanka didn't know how to cook at all. You know, he has this part close to the beginning where he talks about the books that influenced him. And, mm -hmm. and he lists Sun Tzu's Art of War. Can you know, you the the classic that you know every politician every high school kid every politician everyone has it on their desk and he says so he learned the art of war from the great chinese classic but the war that he's talking about is not dealing with you know north korea or iran or nuclear or, weapons or china or nuclear weapons he's talking about dealing with steve bannon and, you know, a lot of the book is about the internal fighting between him and people like Steve Bannon. So that's why I ask, who is this book for? Who wants really wants to read 500 pages of Jared explaining his battles with Steve Bannon and then why he deserves credit for all the great things that he did? I'm not sure that the that the Trump base really cares about Jared very much. I don't think they do. I do think that the Trump base is like, um, you know, it's a cult of personality. So that the people who would read this from the Trump base would just want to be seeing things about Trump. And they would figure that Jared would have things about Trump in here. And he has things about Trump. Not, you know, you can't tell how deep they are because he is, seems to be an extremely... Uh, superficial person from reading this book. But um, other than that, I would think it's, you know, it almost reminds me of books that older people write about their lives that they then uh, get someone to put between hardcovers and they make them for their grandchildren. 
And that would be the audience. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. The reviewer for the foreword said he almost felt sympathy for Jared after reading this book. I, I wonder if that's the way you felt. Well, I, you know, I kind of love the book, although, of course, it's way too long. But it's it's depiction of this feckless, uh, no-nothing, no, no uh, interfering at the highest levels of American government and the way he's shunted around by everybody, but he doesn't seem to be aware of that. People are always saying to him, thank you, Jared, go sit over there. <laughs> and he <laughs> thinks that's a great compliment. I'm in the room. And he said, thank you. And they're important. It's, it's really like that. But then of course he has access to the president. So they have to be nice to him. And he, you know, he's around, so they have to be nice to him. And he's always sort of, he rushes in like Robin to Trump's Batman. And he goes and, you know, he's like the messenger boy. He always has a note in his pocket from someone smart that he's bringing across the way to someone else smart. But he's never the guy who's smart. But he, he depicts himself as a top negotiator. At the end of Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un, the chairman comes out to talk to the people around and Jared's one of them. And he says to Jared, thank you so much for putting me in touch with Mike Pompeo. And like Jared goes on for three paragraphs about how he got him in touch with Mike Pompeo. But the guy didn't want to talk to Jared. <laughs> and Jared at one point says, oh, talking to him will be as good as talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric with Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, thank you for reading Jared's book. I know it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but that's not because the vocabulary is difficult. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.